We stand with the Palawa and Bacana of Lutruwita, along with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples Australia-wide. We wish to firmly acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait sovereignty was never ceded. It was, and always will be, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. Australia is the only settler colonial state which does not formally recognise the dispossession caused by colonialism. Carried by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the land and sea which we call home is the world's oldest continuing living culture, dating back to over 65,000 years. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were the first artists, scientists, creators, storytellers and so much more. Today, and always, we acknowledge and honour the depth and richness of these cultures. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices will never be silenced. We at Twix will work harder to not only stand alongside, but to amplify Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices. And we invite you, the listener, to do so as well. We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now that's what I call science. Hello listeners, you're tuned in to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, from Lutruita, Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palo and Pakana. I'm recording here on Lutruita, but as we are a podcast and our guests today are actually calling in by video call, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from and from where they are recording. On behalf of everyone here, we pay our respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined remotely today by not one, not two, but three guests from the One Million Turtles team, who I had the absolute pleasure of sitting behind at the Eureka Awards ceremony earlier this year, and it was amazing to get to watch their joy as the team won the Innovation in Citizen Science at the Australian Museum's 2023 Eureka Prizes. I'm joined today by Associate Professor James Van Dyke, Associate Professor Deborah Bauer, and Associate Professor Ricky Spencer. So thank you all for joining us today. And before we talk about the awesome One Million Turtles project that brings the three of you together, I actually think it would be great for our listeners to get to know each of you a little bit more so we know about your lives beyond the turtles. So we'll start with Van. You're up top on my video call screen. Can you please tell our listeners what research you are involved with at La Trobe University? Hi, Ali. So I am mainly focusing on freshwater turtle ecology and conservation. I have a background in vertebrate reproduction, uh, ecology and evolution and physiology as well. So I'm really interested in how animals make their babies and how those babies then progress through the population and how we can use that kind of knowledge to enhance their conservation. If you had to give our listeners one exciting research finding that you've had in recent years, what would it be? I think uh, one of the things that our team has come up with uh, that we found, uh, it's not really even related to the reproduction angle, but is the impact that uh, turtles have as scavengers in the river. So that's something that 
Uh, Ricky and I co-supervised a PhD student named Claudia Santorion, and uh, she had a really cool study just showing what impact the turtles have as the scavengers. They really keep the water clean when we have things like uh, fish kill events, if there's enough turtles to do the job anyway. Yeah, fantastic. You really wouldn't think of turtles and scavenging together. Moving on to our second guest, which going down the screen, we have Deb. So Deb, as an associate professor in zoology and ecology at the University of New England in New South Wales, what research projects are you currently involved in there? Hi, Ellie. So I run the Laboratory of Applied Zoology and Ecological Restoration, aka LASER, and the research that unites our group is looking at conservation strategies in freshwater systems, so rivers and wetlands, and I'm also a herpetologist, which means I study reptiles and frogs. And so a lot of the work that we do is on turtles and frogs as amphibians in our freshwater systems. Awesome. And what sort of day-to-day does it look like to be involved in that? Well, at the moment, we have students who are out collecting bells turtles, which are a butt-breathing turtle that occur in highland regions in a, in a really small area. So the one, they're on the New England tablelands and their populations have been declining and foxes come along and dig up their nests like they do for many turtles. And so we collect the females and induce them to lay eggs and then we bring up those eggs in the lab and release them at the end of the breeding season once they hatch out. So we've got a really large conservation program aimed at trying to mitigate some of the predation that foxes do. And I've got other students out catching frogs in this rainy weather that we've been having, um, looking at the difference in density and disease between dams versus natural wetlands, Um, students looking at obstacle courses for turtles and um, lots of different things like that. Oh, awesome. Now, just to pick up on... A really small bit at the beginning there, but something that caught my ears, and I reckon would catch the attention of our listeners too. What does butt breathing mean? <laughs> so, so freshwater turtles are really cool in that some of them have uh, two forms of respiration. So they can breathe out of their mouth the way that we can, uh, but they can also breathe out of their bum. So they have this highly vascularized surface in their bum. They can um, pump blood through that. And it means that, particularly for the bells turtle, they can dive down for a really long time, particularly in winter when there's lots of oxygen in the water um, and stay underwater for a really long time. But it does also make them a little bit vulnerable if those if those systems have less oxygen in them or if they become clogged from lots of uh, erosion of little bits of dirt that's washed into the river, it can cause some problems doing that. Yeah. And growing up, did you know that zoology was something that you always wanted to do? It was the career that you envisioned going into? I grew up in England and I was 12 years old and I always loved animals, but I didn't realise that zoology was even a pathway that existed. And so as a kid, I thought I'll be a vet or I'll work in a zoo, something that was familiar to me. And it wasn't until I got to high school and did work experience and they put me into Queensland Parks and Wildlife into a kangaroo breeding facility that I heard all about zoology and the opportunities that you can do with research and conservation. 
Can you tell our listeners a bit about the ecology projects that you're involved in at Western Sydney University? Yeah, thanks, Ollie. Um, I probably, uh, obviously, One Million Turtles is a very special project that we're involved with, but we've got a, a range of different different projects that um, I guess are really a, a way to apply innovation. So a lot of stuff we're doing right at the moment is involving AI, things like with uh, like Transport for New South Wales to actually you know develop a, a detector where you can put your uh, your phone up on your uh, on your dash cam or up on your holder and dash cam to actually detect turtles, but well beyond. So going beyond that, so they can actually automatically detect wildlife. And you can imagine that beyond turtles is that you know road collisions with kangaroos and you know become really important in that aspect of it. Um, obviously, with you know with the turtle projects, that's front and centre, and it has always been. Um, you know, I, I did my PhD on conservation of freshwater turtles. We've done a whole range of other projects, which are kind of on the back burner now around synchronous hatching in turtles, which is, you know, really cool that, you know, those eggs can communicate with each other to time their hatching, which is really a cool, cool finding. But other projects, we've got some really large projects at the moment uh, in India, um, particularly around ground and surface water conservation and quality. Uh, water quality, um, which is a big issue, obviously, around the world. So we've got a lot of research in that area, but also training. So we train and have training programs. Uh, one's called the Young India Water Professionals, which are the students in this case already have uh, you know, master's degrees, potentially working in the field with the government. What we do is work with them. Uh, we help them develop large projects, but also Training in that in that field goes well beyond the actual water conservation, but also like around personal development, professional development, and that those kind of aspects as well. Brilliant. Now, thanks to the joys of academic Twitter, I've actually seen that you have an alter ego, Ricky, one that likes to dress in eighties wear and give weather reports, but not of the usual sort. We'll hear more about one million turtles after the break, but. For now, could you give our listeners a quick sneak peek into who this other Ricky is? It's Turtle Month at the moment, so everybody, happy Turtle Month. There are turtles out uh, nesting probably right now around around the country. And part of, you know, it's a big time of year for us with the One Million Turtles project to engage citizen science. And, you know, part of that's to make it really fun and to make the science fun as well. And... One one of the things I created a, a turtle forecast, and that's that's based on a lot of science behind it, and citizen science, and as well as a bit of AI and modelling, to actually create an, a predictive map around where turtles are likely to nest. People can put in their addresses and see where those hotspots are. And with you know the kind of the forecast every day, there's you know we know one of the things that you know we haven't incorporated in that because it's so. It drives nesting, you know, of most turtles across the country is rains in November or at least in the southern half of, uh, of Australia. So, you know, we, we can follow the rains, we can see where the storms are, and then we can actually bring this predictive map into uh, and, and tell people this part of the country, turtles are going to be out, use the uh, predictive map and you can just type in your address and you can see potentially where turtles are going to nest. Um, so I started initially just putting that, you know, kind of a map up and... I, yeah, it was post-Halloween, remember, 1st of November is uh, Turtle Month and was with my daughter down at a local store and it was the Halloween outfits were on clearance and 
Well, I kind of saw an Austin Powers one and thought, right, let's create totally cool and just do a, you know, a, a disco-themed predictive map. But the idea really about the turtle forecast has a lot of science behind it. But, yeah, it's about just, just having a little bit of fun with it at, at the time. That's so great. And we'll talk later on with Eureka and the value of citizen science and just how good it is to have that sort of way of engaging people because you can put up a map and you can tell them the information, but if you've got someone telling them with an 80s um, personality, they'll probably take a bit more of an attention to it. So stick with us, listeners, for part two as we learn about what brings these three together, turtles. Welcome back, listeners. You're tuned in to That's What I Call Science. And today we are talking about things in fresh waters. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by three of the Eureka winning One Million Turtles team James Van Dyke, Deb Bauer, and Ricky Spencer. So, One Million Turtles, what does that mean? Does it mean that you have One Million Turtles in your house? Does it mean that you're looking for One Million Turtles? What is the project about? I think Rick, you better take this one. Ben, I actually think you explained it best at the uh, at the Eureka Awards. I, 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 you summed it up beautifully. What was what was it? What did you say? Uh, I think we said that um, it would be a lot easier to get a million people to each save a turtle as opposed to one person to save a million turtles. And that's what it's about. It really is engaging people to become. I, I think there's a few things here that we we want to. Um, make communities turtle aware and we want to create turtle safe uh, environments or turtle safe communities and that's really important if people become turtle aware they know where our turtles are being killed and where the issues are things like road mortality uh, nest mortality it's really easy to find turtles when you if you're aware of them and it's really easy to make a big difference by picking up a turtle off the road and I always come back to that one um, it's probably the most profound impacts on um, population stability or conservation, picking a turtle off off the road. So if you think about it, and we, you know, we keep it simple. Turtles can live, you know, a hundred odd years, can produce twenty, thirty eggs per year, depending on the species. So not only are you just picking up that one turtle, you're particular uh, potentially picking up thousands of of babies um, over the next, you know, seventy five to a hundred years. Um, so that's where you know it can uh, can really have some impact. Obviously, we want people to do it safely, and so that's the big aspect. Of it. We don't want people, you know, putting their lives at risk themselves. But if they do have opportunities to pick up turtles, they can learn that you know, they'll know that they're going to have a really big impact on the population. But it's also it's a really important way of connecting people with nature. It's it's probably the only unscripted way one of the unscripted uh, we call it unscripted interact interaction with wildlife as in it's safe you're not going to get bitten you're not going to get get hurt and you're not uh, other than you know doing it you do, you do it in a safe way and not you know if you're picking it up off roads you're doing it safely you know uh, but in terms of that interaction with um with wildlife you don't get any other interaction like that um, you know, unless it's you're at a zoo or, you know, a wildlife park or something like that, and you can do it in a safe way. So people 
uh, feel connected and they can feel really empowered afterwards doing it because they've done a good thing for that individual but also the population. If a person's picked up a turtle from the side of the road, where's the best place or where do you want them to be putting it back down again? Do you want them to be finding somewhere else or just a bit further away from the road? We ask people just to move them across the road in the direction they're heading. And that's important because that's within the home range of the turtle. It's going in the direction it wants to be going. Uh, They have, as far as we know from other species of turtles, we don't know an Australian ones very well yet, but they've got a map in their brain that can tell them, you know, where they've been, where they're going and how to get there. So uh, it's best to just keep them where they're comfortable and minimize your own safety first or minimize your own risks first and uh, just move them across and let them do their own thing after that. And that's with regards to the road mortality, but you also mentioned nest mortality. So what are the threats to turtles in their nesting areas? Turtle nests are are vulnerable because at that stage, the mummy turtle has walked up out of the water, dug a little nest, laid her eggs in it, and then left them there, abandoned them to fend for themselves at that stage. And over about the course of the next 60 days, the little eggs develop, and then the hatchlings will dig their way out of the nest and go back down to the water. And so during the stage that they're developing as eggs, there can be foxes that come along and dig them up. Occasionally, uh, native species will also dig them up. It could be a goanna or a raven. Up north, uh, pigs are a really big issue as well. And then um, there may be other impacts if, if areas are getting dug up in other ways or trampled. So there's, it is a very vulnerable stage and there's training on the onemillionturtles.com website about how you can protect a turtle nest. If you find a turtle nesting, you can put some mesh over it as long as the mesh is of a certain size that the hatchlings can crawl out of it. And it's a really fun way to teach kids to interact with what's going on in the environment and to learn about those threats that our turtles are facing. What is the distribution of freshwater turtles across Australia where if our listeners are tuning in from different states, which ones would actually be likely to encounter a turtle? Every state on mainland Australia has native turtle species. Tasmania has also got a feral population of eastern long-necked turtles now. Uh, But if you live on the mainland, all the major cities have uh, opportunities for turtles nesting Anyone who lives near a dam or near water will have turtles coming out of the water to nest. Is it also useful if people, um, they're putting in records about the native species, but do you also want to know where the invasive ones are? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we often get asked about things like red-eared sliders. That's a North American species that has been brought around the world as a mainly for the pet trade. Uh, and they're really hardy. Um, ecologically, they're very similar to our short neck turtles here in Australia, that they eat the same kinds of things, live in similar kinds of water, and have a very similar um, life cycle. Um, but red-eared sliders are one that we have an option for on TurtleSat to record. So TurtleSat's the app uh, that we have for people to record turtle sightings. And if we get those kinds of records, those are things that can feed directly into management so people could go out and um be able to take care of that population before they spread too fast. It's one of the species that Australia as a country is most concerned about in terms of getting a foothold as an invasive. Um, So that's one that all the states are very uh, quick to react to. 
Good to know. Now, listeners, stick with us for part three as we hear more about turtles and also celebrate the one million turtles win at Eureka. Welcome back, listeners. This is That's What I Call Science. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by three guests that are coming out of their shells today to talk to us about turtles. So I'm here with the One Million Turtles team, and congratulations to the three of you and the whole team behind One Million Turtles for winning the Australian Museum's Eureka Prize 2023 for Innovation in Citizen Science. I'd love to ask, what does winning a Eureka mean not just for One Million Turtles, but for each of you in a more personal way? I can start on that one. The big thing that I think that we're doing with this is it's not just a citizen science program. And that's what a lot of people uh, are are doing. And that's great. You know, we, we need citizen science or community science, however you want to say that. But what we're really trying to do is take, take it that next step further and make it about community science or uh, sorry, community conservation, getting people involved in on ground conservation that they can do themselves that really does make a difference. And I think winning a Eureka Prize is a good way to demonstrate that this is something that is of interest to people. And hopefully it's something that we can build and apply not just to turtles, but to other species as well. You know, if somebody has an interest in a particular plant or insect or anything, maybe there's an opportunity to uh, do this kind of work for just about anything. And that's really important because conservation is, as we know, all know, stretched to the limit in so many different ways that the more people that are helping, the better it's going to be. I'll have a go too. Um, I really want to continue that theme, what Van said. Um, I think it's it's creating a, fr- a framework beyond citizen science. Um, citizen science is when we first came up with the concept of getting people involved, you know, I created TurtleSat, the app, you know, about 10 years ago now, very simple, because it was it was really, uh, we knew there were problems as scientists, and and as a scientist, we really can only, you know, do quite small areas. But we were, we were hearing people, we we're hearing, you know, Indigenous people on land, uh, we're hearing management agencies saying there's a problem, they're not seeing turtles where they where they were um, once, uh, you know, quite common. And so that was the idea initially to, okay, let's get people reporting. Let's get where they're, where they're being hit on roads, where the nests are being dug up, where they're seeing them. But it really has evolved. And it's, it's actually been, you know, really a great journey to see it evolve from just simple, you know, recordings to actually people doing things on, on ground. And yesterday was a great example too where, you know, communicating with, you know, our, Turtles Australia, who we've worked with for quite a while, Graham Stockfeld. Um, we've been creating these turtle islands around the country and really, you know, ramping them up now. Graham created one end of last year, and he was standing on the island sending us text messages with there were twelve turtles that had nested on the island, and he said, I think his comment was, "I couldn't give a big enough thumbs up on Messenger, like you couldn't find a big enough thumbs up." So. You know, someone who's so passionate um, about turtles and being able to facilitate that is actually, it's a great example. And you know, really, um, you know, from my, my perspective, that's exactly what we're trying to create. We, you know, create a, a, you know, conservation in action because we can't leave it to government agencies anymore. We can't wait for something to become 
critically endangered, particularly these long-lived species that's too late. So um, working with on-ground conservation, communities driving it um, is actually what we want to achieve with with the more common species that are likely to become potentially uh, endangered, you know, in years to come. And I'll just add to that. I think the Eureka Prize amplifies the message of One Million Turtles that the community does care and the community is being really successful in contributing to turtle conservation and turtle research. That's so wonderful to see how big the wind reverberates around the turtle community. So what is the future for One Million Turtles? Is there anything in the rest of 2023 or in 2024 coming up for the team or the turtles? Van, do you want to jump in? And I guess we're we're at a stage where, um, you know, we're in the final year of the research project, and and obviously there's a final celebration to some degree. Yeah, I think from a science perspective, one of the things that we're focusing a lot on is the impact of nest predation, so things like foxes and pigs and things like that. Um, I'm really interested, and I'm not sure if this falls into the citizen aspect of it or just the science aspect of it, but I'm really interested in what baby turtles do uh, because they are kind of the a missing life history stage in turtles because they have so many babies, they just kind of go around and, and disappear. And it's likely that even under natural circumstances, a lot of them get eaten, you know, they're food for other things and very few of them make it to adulthood, but we really don't know. And so figuring out the kinds of habitat requirements that baby turtles have how can we make the rivers and the wetlands better for them, I think is going to be the next big challenge. If we found ways that do actually address nest predation, then making sure that the babies have a better chance is the next step. And so that's that's the thing that I'm really interested to chase up. Another thing we're really excited about is that a project that we started at the beginning of One Million Turtles was putting together a an illustrated children's book to teach communities about about the process of conserving turtles and so the illustrations for that are nearly finished and that will be coming out shortly so everyone can look forward to to being able to get a hold of that oh that's so exciting I love to see that use of the arts to display science to the public so speaking of looking out for things where can our listeners find out more about one million turtles or look out for the book so we always put updates on our website, onemillionturtles.com, and people can subscribe to a newsletter and get updates um, to their inbox as well. Wonderful. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the episode. So thank you so much for being here virtually today. And thank you listeners for tuning in to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you STEM-related content and we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did enjoy it, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn or Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to extend a huge thank you once more to my guests for joining me today. Associate Professor James Van Dyke, Associate Professor Deborah Bauer and Associate Professor Ricky Spencer. A huge congratulations to the three of you and the whole One Million Turtles team for the Eureka Prize. From us all, we hope you all have a turtly wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. That's What I Call Science is brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find the show at all major podcast streaming services and find out more about us from our social media channels. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all the exciting science, 
Technology, Engineering, Maths and Medicine Research in Nutrita, Tasmania. This show is supported and strengthened by Edge Radio, so head over to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. Thanks for tuning in today, and may your week be stemtastic. <laughs>